Part Two, Chapter Ten of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies. Part Two, Wild England, Chapter Ten, The Feast. At ten in the morning next day, the feast began with a drama from Sophocles, which was performed in the open air. The theatre was in the gardens between the wall and the inner stockade. The spectators sat on the slope, tier above tier. The actors appeared upon a green terrace below, issuing from an arbour, and passing off behind a thick box hedge on the other side of the terrace. There was no scenery whatever. Aurora had selected the Antigone. There were not many dramatists from whom to choose, for so many English writers, once famous, had dropped out of knowledge and disappeared. Yet some of the far more ancient Greek and Roman classics remained, because they contained depth and originality of ideas in small compass. They had been copied in manuscripts by thoughtful men from the old printed books before they mouldered away and their manuscripts being copied again, these works were handed down. The books which came into existence with printing had never been copied by the pen, and had consequently nearly disappeared. Extremely long and diffuse, it was found, too, that so many of them were but enlargements of ideas or sentiments which had been expressed in a few words by the classics. It is so much easier to copy an epigram of two lines than a printed book of hundreds of pages, and hence it was that Sophocles had survived, while much more recent writers had been lost. From a translation Aurora had arranged several of his dramas. Antigone was her favourite, and she wished Felix to see it. In some indefinable manner the spirit of the ancient Greeks seemed to her in accord with the times for men had, or appeared to have, so little control over their own lives that they might well imagine themselves overruled by destiny. Communication between one place and another was difficult, the division of society into castes and the iron tyranny of arms prevented the individual from making any progress in lifting himself out of the groove in which he was born except by the rarest opportunity, unless specially favoured by fortune. As men were born, so they lived. They could not advance, and when this is the case, the idea of fate is always predominant. The workings of destiny, the irresistible overpowering both the good and the evil disposed, such as were traced in the Greek drama, were paralleled in the lives of many a miserable slave at that day. They were forced to endure, for there was no possibility of effort. Aurora saw this and felt it deeply. Ever anxious as she was for the good of all, she saw the sadness that reigned even in the midst of the fresh foliage of spring and among the flowers. It was fate. It was Sophocles. She took the part of the heroine herself, clad in Greek costume. Felix listened and watched, absorbed in his love. Never had that ancient drama appeared so beautiful as then, in the sunlight. The actors stepped upon the daisied sward, 
and the song of birds was all their music. While the play was still proceeding, those who were to form the usual procession had already been assembling in the court before the castle, and just after noon, to the sound of the trumpet, the baron, with his youngest son beside him, the eldest was at court, left the porch, wearing his fur-lined short mantle, his collar and golden spurs, and the decoration won so many years before, all the insignia of his rank. He walked. His war-horse, fully caparisoned with axe at the saddle-bow, was led at his right side, and upon the other came a knight carrying the banneret of the house. The gentlemen of the house followed closely, duly marshalled in ranks, and wearing the gayest dress. The leading retainers, fully armed, brought up the rear. Immediately upon issuing from the gate of the wall, the procession was met and surrounded by the crowd, carrying large branches of may in bloom, flowers and green willow boughs. The flowers they flung before him on the ground, the branches they bore with them, chanting old verses in honour of the family. The route was through the town, where the baron stopped at the door of the courthouse, and proclaimed a free pardon to all serfs, who were released within a few minutes, not guilty of the heavier crimes. Thence he went to the pasture just beyond, carefully mown close and swept for the purpose, where the maypole stood, wreathed in flowers and green branches. Beneath it he deposited a bag of money for distribution, upon a carved butt placed there, the signal that the games were open. Instantly the fiddles began to play, and the feast really commenced. At the inns ale was served out freely at the baron's charge. Carts, too, came down from the castle laden with ale and cooked provisions. Wishing them joy, the baron returned by the same road to the castle, where dinner was already served in the hall and the sheds that had been erected to enlarge the accommodation. In the afternoon there were foot-races, horse-races, and leaping competitions, and the dances about the maypole were prolonged far into the night. The second day, early in the morning, the barriers were opened, and trials of skill with the blunt sword, jousting with the blunt lance at the quintin, and wrestling began, and continued almost till sunset. Tournament with sharpened lance or sword, when the combatants fight with risk of serious wounds, can take place only in the presence of the prince or his deputy. But in these conflicts sufficiently severe blows were given to disable the competitors. On the third day there was a set battle in the morning between fifteen men on each side, armed with the usual buckler or small shield, and stout single sticks instead of swords. This combat excited more interest than all the duels that had preceded it. The crowd almost broke down the barriers, and the cheering and cries of encouragement could be heard upon the hills. Thrice the combatants rested from the engagement, and thrice at the trumpet call started again to meet each other, at least those who had sustained the first onslaught. Blood, indeed, was not shed for the iron Morians saved their skulls, but nearly half of the number required assistance to reach the tents pitched for their use. Then came more feasting, the final dinner prolonged till six in the evening, when the company, 
constantly rising from their seats, cheered the baron, and drank to the prosperity of the house. After the horn blew at six, the guests who had come from a distance rapidly dispersed, their horses were already waiting, for they were anxious to pass the fifteen miles of forest before nightfall. Those on foot, and those ladies who had come in covered wagons, stayed till next morning, as they could not travel so speedily. By seven or eight the castle courtyard was comparatively empty, and the baron, weary from the mere bodily efforts of saying farewell to so many, had flung himself at full length on a couch in the drawing-room. During the whole of this time Felix had not obtained a single moment with Aurora. Her time, when not occupied in attending to the guests, was always claimed by Lord Durand. Felix, after the short-lived but pure pleasure he had enjoyed in watching her upon the grass-grown stage, had endured three days of misery. He was among the crowd, he was in the castle itself, he sat at table with the most honoured visitors, yet he was distinct from all. There was no sympathy between them and him. The games, the dancing, the feasting and laughter, the ceaseless singing and shouting, and jovial jostling, jarred upon him. The boundless interest the people took in the combats, and especially that of the thirty, seemed to him a strange and inexplicable phenomenon. It did not excite him in the least. He could turn his back upon it without hesitation. He would, indeed, have left the crowd and spent the day in the forest or on the hills. But he could not leave Aurora. He must be near her. He must see her, though he was miserable. Now he feared that the last moment would come, and that he should not exchange a word with her. He could not, with any show of pretext, prolong his stay beyond the sunset. All were already gone, with the exceptions mentioned. It would be against etiquette to remain longer, unless specially invited, and he was not specially invited. Yet he lingered and lingered. His horse was ready below. The groom, weary of holding the bridle, had thrown it over an iron hook in the yard, and gone about other business. The sun perceptibly declined, and the shadow of the beeches of the forest began to descend the grassy slope. Still he stayed, restlessly moving, now in the dining-chamber, now in the hall, now at the foot of the staircase, with an unpleasant feeling that the servants looked at him curiously, and were watching him. Oliver had gone long since, riding with his new friend Lord Durand. They must by now be halfway through the forest. Forced by the inexorable flight of time, he put his foot upon the staircase to go up to the drawing-room and bid farewell to the baroness. He ascended it step by step, as a condemned person goes to his doom. He stayed to look out of the open windows as he went by, anything to excuse delay to himself. He reached the landing at last, and had taken two steps towards the door, when Aurora's maid, who had been waiting there an hour or more for the opportunity, brushed past him, and whispered, "'The Rose Arbour!' Without a word he turned, 
hastened down the stairs, ran through the castle yard, out at the gate, and entering the gardens between the wall and the inner stockade, made for the arbour on the terrace where the drama had been enacted. Aurora was not there. But as he looked round, disappointed, she came from the filbert walk, and, taking his arm, led him to the arbour. They sat down without a word. In a moment she placed her head upon his shoulder. He did not respond. She put her arm—how warm it felt—about his neck. He yielded stiffly and ungraciously to the pressure. She drew down his head and kissed him. His lips touched, but did not press hers. They met, but did not join. In his sullen and angry silence he would not look. She drew still nearer and whispered his name. Then he broke out. He pushed her away. His petty jealousy and injured self-esteem poured out upon her. "'I am not the heir to an earldom,' he said. "'I do not ride with a score of gentlemen at my back. "'They have some wonderful diamonds, have they not, Countess?' "'Felix!' "'It is no use. "'Yes, your voice is sweet, I know. "'But you, all of you, despise me. "'I am nothing, no one.' "'You are all everything to me.' You were with—with Durand the whole time. I could not help myself. Not help yourself? Do you think I believe that? Felix, dear, I tell you I could not help myself. I could not indeed. You do not know all. No, probably not. I do not know the terms of the marriage contract. Felix, there is no such thing. Why, what has come to you? How pale you look! Sit down. For he had risen. I cannot, Aurora, dear, I cannot. Oh, what shall I do? I love you so. End of part two, chapter ten.